Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Josh DeLeon from Underground Creamery coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined by my co-host this week. He is a Houston hospitality veteran and a co-founder of the Houston Barbecue Festival. Michael Former, welcome back to the show. How are you? Doing great. Curious to find out all about this Underground Creamery. What's that all about? Yeah, I don't I don't know either, but it's it's blowing up the internet. So we'll we'll talk to Josh. <laughs> we'll talk to Josh and get and get wait for it, the scoop. Oh my god, there it is. Oh well. Okay, it's Monday. You can get what's well, a day you can get away with that. Yeah. All right. Let us dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one is Akaya, a Japanese restaurant in Midtown has closed. Its owners, the Azuma Group, which is responsible for Restaurants like Azuma, Soma Sushi, and Katarobata is converting the space into a new casual Southern restaurant called Josephine's that will be led by chef Lucas McKinney, who worked in a variety of roles for Underbelly Hospitality. Uh, he ran the kitchen at Hay Merchant for a little while. He, he was the chef de cuisine for GJ Tavern for a hot minute, and he worked in various roles at Georgia James, the upscale steakhouse. Michael, before we talk about Josephine's, let's uh, let's take a minute to to remember Izakaya. Do you have any any memories of it you'd like to share? I didn't really go that often. Um, I mean, I remember the first time I went, I was surprised they didn't have sushi, and of course, I guess that was part of their lease agreement because of what was it, Blue Sushi? There was a sushi place across yeah, Bluefish, the 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 Midtown staple that's been there yeah, for Bluefish, twenty five so years they- or whatever. So they weren't allowed to serve sushi. So that actually, you know, of course, that drove you right to doing the Rabada and, and the other stuff that they did, which was interesting. You know, I remember actually Teddy Lopez uh, got them, helped get them going early on to Chef Teddy Lopez. And, you know, um, you know I, I looked back at, at sort of my initial coverage of Izakaya, and there was a lot of potential, right? It, it opened with Hori-san from Kata Rabada contributed some ideas to the menu. Philippe Gaston was the executive chef. He was riding high off of Cold Cove Bar, his concept within Haven, this uh, farm-to-table restaurant, kind of a pioneering farm-to-table restaurant. And and I think more than anything, what, what I'll remember of Izakaya is that it never quite clicked for me. That, you know, they had all these great ideas about the robata and the, and the ramen, and then for a little, you know, and then a couple of years later, they rolled out soup dumplings. And they had these these really great bartenders that, that did the cocktails, and and I know it's been it's been a home for some very talented Houston bartenders over the years, but but it just never it never quite snapped into focus for me. And and after you know I, I went a couple of times when it first opened, and then I checked in on it, you know maybe a year or two later, and I was just like, it just isn't for me. It's it's no disrespect to the people that work there, but uh, you know that that. I think more than anything will be my takeaway that it just, it had, a, it had a lot of potential and a lot of good ideas and a great pedigree. And it just never quite snapped into focus for me. Yeah. A similar dynamic for me. Uh, I, I remember how hard Philippe was working when they first opened and it just it was like, it was just okay. A decent enough meal, but it was just like, uh, I'm not going to come back here. And it seemed became more of like the sort of watering hole for the midtown area, which, you know, is not really my scene. So Yeah. Right. I, I think that's right. I think it kind of settled into a sort of middle age. It's like a happy hour spot. 
primarily for the midtown crowd and and that was kind of it but i do want to talk about josephine just a little bit because i'm really excited about this for for chef lucas mckinney i i won't say that we're friends but i have i have known him uh for a couple of years and kind of watched him rise you know alongside chris shepherd in the underbelly organization you know he was he was kind of a fringe uh tastemaker awards candidate he never never quite got the public profile to be a nominee, but but the the work that he was doing, especially at Hay Merchant, uh, kind of in the in the latter stages of, of that restaurant's life, uh, you know, he he built a lot of fans uh, in the food world for for the work that he was doing there, and so you know he's a he's a Mississippi boy, you know he worked at some great restaurants in in Mississippi, and then he came to Houston, and and for him to get this opportunity is is really exciting for me. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it. To me, you can't have enough sort of you know, Cajun Creole, uh, sort of lunch, low mid price places, you know, not, we're not talking like tablecloth places. We're talking like things that you find in the whole Delta region that are so prevalent in, you know, Alabama, Mississippi, and particularly in Louisiana. And there seems to be a real dearth of them here. So bring it on. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, though, you know, I, I talked to Lucas, he's like, yeah, you can get a po' boy and a cup of gumbo from us but they're also going to give people you know if you want to if you want a seafood tower he'll make he'll make you one of those too so it's going to have a kind of a high low aesthetic you know i was sort of kidding him a little bit i'm like so it's somewhere between winnie's you know the very casual po'boy bar in midtown and Eunice, the sort of elevated creole uh restaurant with new orleans roots and he's like yeah i'd say that's fair it's somewhere it's somewhere in between those and and you know those are two restaurants that i really love and so to have something that sort of slots in between them that, that yeah, you and I could go for a casual lunch or you take a date there potentially or, or some other kind of occasion dining, that's very appealing to me. And, and it, well, let me get your take. I mean, what do you think about this kind of as a fit for Midtown with everything else that's going on there? I mean, they're going to be close to Cyclone Anaya's and 13 and, and, you know, all these other places. Even if they were doing the same dynamic as Winnie's, Winnie's is on the other end of Midtown, and there's just so many people who live in that area. There's more than enough room for both. But if they're doing something a little bit more, I hesitate to use the word elevated, but you know, it's a little more mid price, mid range price. Bring it. I mean, we so many people talk about embracing, you know, Gulf seafood and and the huge bounty that's available to us in terms of shellfish and regular fish and all of those things. There's just not like a whole bunch of it, you know, um, you know, uh, and so particularly for that area. Uh, and if they, you know, if they're able to brand themselves as this, you know, real kind of Houston identity, Gulf Coast, dude, they're right on the edge of downtown. They have all the access to all those hotels, to George R. Brown, you know, they could, they could become destination worthy. You know, that's that's obviously in the long run. They got to make it work. Uh, but I'll be there when they open. I like that Lucas is thinking a little more broadly, right? He's like, you know, so many Gulf Coast restaurants, the food is heavy. It's really focused on New Orleans. And he he knows that food and he can make you fried catfish with crawfish etouffee on top. But he wants to go a little broader. He, he said, you know, I want to do the Gulf Coast from from Corpus Christi to Florida and, and be respectful of more recent ways of integration, immigration to the Gulf Coast. So, you know, maybe a Vietnamese dish or two, maybe even a Croatian dish or two. And just just think really broadly about what it means to be Gulf Coast cuisine in 2023. I, I 
again, I'm I'm very excited about this restaurant. I, I'm looking forward to it. Well, plus there's there's the rare dynamic in Houston of the sort of pedestrian friendly restaurant or restaurant zone, and you know go through Midtown, particularly on an evening, you know, near the weekends, and there's people all in the streets walking around. They're bouncing around. They're not necessarily going to one place and staying there. Uh, and so there's something to be capitalized on that. Absolutely. All right. Let us dive into topic number two. You're the barbecue guy. So we need to talk about the swinging door, the historic Richmond barbecue joint that is closing just shy of its 50th anniversary. Michael, let me, let me just, you're the, you're the barbecue guy, as I said, not to repeat myself, but, but what are your thoughts? What is, what is the place of the swinging door in Houston barbecue history. You know, bar, you know, restaurants in particular, but but really, you know, focusing that barbecue places really become, you know, once they make it past seven or eight years, they really become part of the community. And uh, what's the old Don Draper lane about, you know, line about uh, nostalgia? You know, it's delicate, but potent. And barbecue falls into that nostalgic, you know, realm so strongly that, People who grow up with it, they continue to go. And when they become part of the community, they continue to go there well into their adulthood and bring their families there. And with the whole wave of what's happened with craft barbecue, you know, the Aaron Franklin revolution and everything that's happened since then, like they didn't, they didn't pivot and change that. They stayed to who they were. Uh, you know, it, it was a very basic Texas Trinity of, you know, brisket, sausage, ribs and, and it, for me it was like of a middling quality you know for me it was like that's quite the drive for me like you know i live inside the loop now will i travel for barbecue of course i will but i'd gone a couple times and it was fine did i need to go back no but i was always really happy to see that you see all the local people there and that they were part of the community and that that's like a beautiful thing they don't need to to change, you know, and it's 50 years and that's a long run. I mean, I know they originally opened to be a furniture place because they thought a big development was going to be there. It didn't happen. And the guy literally, he, he bought the building and he literally pivoted to go, I'm going to do barbecue and I've never done it before. And guess what? If you've never done something before and you open a couple months later and become a barbecue place that lasts 15 years, you know, that's something to hang your hat on. Yeah, no, I, I think that's all well said. I, I think, you know, it's inner loop sort of comparison would be like good company, right? A, a place that that was very well thought of in the in the 80s and even into the 90s that that is going to do what it does and, and hasn't hasn't adapted its style to the new trends and still has a very devoted following. And, you know, I grew up out in Sugar Land and, and you know, I remember going to summer camp on way out on FM 359 even into the eighties and into the, into the mid nineties, that still felt like the country you head out West on highway 90 and you take that right go over the railroad tracks. And it felt like another world. And, and obviously there's just a ton of development around that area now. And it doesn't, it feels, it feels much more suburban now than, than rural. And so, but it, it does it, you know, it has this devoted following They're They're a little bit quirky, right? They use pecan wood instead of post Oak to smoke their meat. So it had a, something that was a little bit distinct about it. And, you know, your friend and mine, Chris Reed, the barbecue columnist for the Houston Chronicle had this great sort of history of the place. It had a, it had a, they cleared out a nearby field so that oil company executives from downtown could land their helicopters there. You know, <laughs> if they wanted to have lunch, Bum Phillips used to go there during the love you blue era. 
you know, on and on. You know, he learned, you know, his pit maker built the pits for Dozier's, the Fulcher barbecue joint that's historic in the, in a similar way. He trained at Pappas Barbecue on Pierce Street in, in downtown. All of these things, all of these little uh, elements that just tie it into to kind of the larger story of Houston barbecue. You know, the, the Facebook post announced the closure and, and just hundreds of comments from people like, uh, you know, I've been coming here for 40 years or or I moved to the area five years ago. This is the first place I had Texas barbecue. You know, I ate there with my grandfather, whatever, all those kind of stories. And so you're right. Like, is it is it is it is it a destination barbecue joint? No, no, it hasn't. It hasn't been that for a very long time. Did it serve its community very well? Uh, for 50 years and make a lot of people really happy. Yes, it, it absolutely did that. And so, you know, I, I think uh, just, just for, for all that, thanks for the memories to the swinging door and, and, you know, best of luck to the owner as he heads into retirement. Absolutely. And then topic number three, I don't think we have to spend too much time on this, but I think it's worth noting that Honda Cherry chef owner, Anita Jaisinghani is a James Beard award finalist for her, cookbook masala that was published last year uh michael as i said i don't think we need to dive too deeply into masala i don't think either one of us have owned it or cooked from it but uh this is this is your opportunity to say something nice about chef anita jaisinghani well the the fact that she you know staked out her zone right in you know in sort of the river oaks district like the upper kirby you know not what you would call the typical place for an indian place and she didn't just you know just kind of survive and make it work she's really thrived uh you know she that, that place is like you, you hear that phrase meatless monday you know they are destination worthy for that and they created this or she's created this uh indian brunch that has you know a, just a really good vibe the menu's wonderful and it gets a good crowd People sit outside, you know, um, I dine there uh, fairly frequently and uh, and I love it. And then, you know, the whole bake lab that she has upstairs, you know, you have all this great Indian food with, you know, my, some of my Indian friends are like, it's not spicy enough. I'm like, well, you know, that's that's the dynamic and that's the crowd. But you go upstairs and they'll have like, you know, the, the chocolate chip cookies with the chilies in them and all the interesting things there. Anything that, you know, brings a little more attention to her and gives her a little more success uh, I think is a good thing. Uh, she's a great part of not just that area, but of the Houston dining scene as a whole, and uh, you know is worthy of uh, of such accolades. No, I I think that's all very well said. I mean, you know, you think about when that development at, at Kirby and Westheimer opened, and it it had Katsuya, this vaunted sushi restaurant from L.A., Del Frisco's Grill. It had a it had two restaurants by Robert Del Grande. All have come and gone. Right. And Pondicherry, this humble little, you know, Indian cafe that's very vegetarian friendly and very eclectic and kind of marches to the beat of its own drummer has thrived for more than 10 years. And, th and that's a testament to, frankly, uh, you know, Chef Anita's talent and her drive and, and her team's willingness to, to go above and beyond for people. And, and you know, it's just, it's affordable. And, and I mean, is it traditional Indian food? No, but it's not it's not supposed to be. You know, it's it's her interpretation and she uses all this great, you know, locally sourced produce and proteins and supports farmers and advocates for great causes. And she's involved with I'll have what she's having, you know, in a in a kind of mentor role to, you know, a lot of other female chefs and restaurateurs. You know, she's a pillar of the the culinary community. And and 
Uh, the book, I mean, from everything I've read about the book, the book looks fantastic. It, you know, it teaches you all the tricks about how to cook with whole spices, you know, how to toast them, how to, when to incorporate them in what order and, and all the dishes you can make with them. So the book looks great. She's one of three finalists in this, in this category. It, you know, she's been a, a best chef, semi-finalist and finalist in the years past. Never quite, never quite uh, took it home. So I, I really hope she wins this because it would be a very nice feather in her cap and a, and a, a worthy accolade for a very accomplished career. Agreed. All right, Michael, I'm going to say that does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. Michael, for our restaurants of the week, I have two Tex-Mex restaurants to talk to you about. Let's start with Mandito's. This is the casual restaurant from the owners of Armando's just opened in Bel Air. You and I had dinner there recently. So let me just throw it to you. What did you what did you think about our meal at Mandito's? First off, the restaurant is beautiful. I mean, it's it's not decked out in this crazy super upscale kind of dynamic, but it's so distinctive from the light fixtures, the color schemes. You know, even, you know, what the waiters are wearing, the servers are wearing, you know, there's these bright colors that just jump out at you, you know, that are, it's very bold without being garish. And it gives, just gives it a great identity and vibe to it. You know, it's, it's, it's very upbeat, good looking bar uh, and very comfortable too. So, you know, that that's all like a, just a great beginning, nice patio that's covered uh, you know, so that in the, you know, the, the rare bearable not you know, when the temperatures actually sometimes drop at night in the summer, they, you know, that can still be a, a viable dining opportunity. And then it's Tex-Mex, you know, they're not going too far off from the norm here. They're doing their thing. Uh, you know, I thought the enchiladas were excellent. It was interesting. The fajitas, they came out on a plate, you know, for one, it wasn't like this big sizzling thing, you know, this big dramatic thing and they were fine. You know, the beef was good. You know, it, it, we've talked so much about this, you know, before, like, you know, Tex-Mex just being this kind of really ultimate comfort food, you know, particularly for Houstonians. And um, I think they fit right into that, that, that vibe, that dynamic, you know, they've, they've got a niche um, and with, you know, with a, a name of already being in round top and then Armando's, you know, to some extent, you know, I, I saw it, what clearly was a lot of their, some of their friends or regular customers there, you know, already checking it out. And, and also uh, the Bel Air, you know, we've also talked about this Bel Air is becoming, you know, a, a dining destination finally, you know, and it's so well-deserved just for the community and makes it more exciting for us who, who travel to eat. No, I, I would agree with all of that. I, I think, you know, we had chips and sauce and queso, we had guacamole, we had, we had an enchilada platter with different enchiladas on it. We had, fish tacos we had like you said we had the fajitas it's all it's all good you know it all it all tasted good it was an appropriate temperature it it looked the part I, you know i just i think this is like a this is a neighborhood tex-mex joint and and to your point you know we're sitting there we we had just sat down and then you know friends of mine who live in the neighborhood walked in with their son and it was their first visit because they because they'd been you know they lived nearby and they were excited to have something like that in the neighborhood. And, 
and there just isn't that much, you know, there isn't much in the way of Tex-Mex in that immediate area. There's, they're still kind of stinging from the loss of, uh, of Picos many years ago at this point. So it's certainly a welcome addition. Armando's brings a reputation for quality. And, and this is nice because it's not, you know, Armando's is white tablecloths and a little bit more fine dining, a little more formal. This is, this is come as you are. It's very casual. Like you said, it's very bright, very clean. It's, you know, it's, it's stylish in its way and it's very welcoming. And, and I just, I think, I think it's a perfect fit uh, for that area. And I think it's going to do, it's going to do very well. Yeah. We had great service. Our server was really, she's great personality, uh, but also like hitting all the right steps and right notes and, 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 you know, just putting her own personality to it. It was really well done. And then it's, it's pretty rare that I ever have a dessert after Tex-Mex because good Lord, all I want to do is take a nap usually, you know, uh, or I take half of what I've eaten home. Um, but we uh, had the opportunity to try their churros and they were spot on perfect, just crispy exterior with that like sweetness without being, you know, treacly and just, you know, that, that soft creaminess on the inside, a little chocolate dipping sauce. It wasn't done in this like crazy fancy plating. It was really simple, but really good and satisfying. Yeah, no, the, the churros were great. We also had a banana split that I really enjoyed. That's like one of those nostalgic desserts that just, Always it's home for me. So so you're right. Yes. The very rare, the very rare Tex-Mex restaurant where don't fill up on chips, save a little room for dessert, uh, because the desserts are worth it. The only other thing is, you know, I had a, a house margarita that I, I really enjoyed. So I, I think the you know, an extensive selection of agave spirits, tequila mezcal, even so tall. And so they put a lot of thought into that aspect of their their offering and it and it shows. Yeah, it's definitely, they've definitely, it's well considered in terms of aesthetic, you know, beyond the menu itself, uh, the bar program, they're not phoning that in. It's, there's places that can phone it in, they can just have very basic margaritas, you know, but they're already established. If you're new, you know, you kind of have to bring something extra to the game and you have to, you have to consider your beverage program beyond the, you know, the normal two or three tequilas you might carry. And um, they definitely have done that. Yeah, I, you know, it's tempting to sort of compare it in a, it's it's not as good as A, it's better than it's better than B. Like I, I think I'm I'm going to resist the urge to do that, but but I will just say that, yeah, it was a very impressive, it it was impressive and and a, a nice addition they brought. I I'd go back. I think yes, you. Yeah, you can go back with Linda Salinas and get her to to pick the bar apart. There you go. And then for our second restaurant, I want to talk to you about Verde Garden. This is the new Tex-Mex patio bar and restaurant from the Kirby Group. That's the local bar group behind places like Heights Beer Garden and Holman Draft Hall. Let me just throw it to you. What did you What did you think of Verde Garden? Well, Verde Garden is they've really taken that space over, and it, it's just it's beautiful. It's it's really comfortable. You know, it's yeah, not. We like should got... we should say that the space is the former Grappino Danino space. That was part of the Nino's and Vincent's complex, just to right, and that that Nino's and Vincent's was like it was an institution for Houston. You know, uh, I remember you know a few decades ago when I first came here. I think the first week I was in town, I got taken there and had lunch at, at Vincent's, and then ate at Nino's a little bit later on. And it's one of those places that you know most people, anybody over thirty, really kind of know about. But I don't know anybody, including me, who's dined there in like the last you know anywhere five to eight years. Really, it's just it's it became sort of an afterthought, and so 
this is Houston. You know, we don't really preserve so much as move forward, but they really did preserve the space. You know, they didn't tear it down. And it's that rare spot that's got, you know, a fairly large indoor footprint, but it's got a, a big enough parking lot to accommodate it. And that company is just a monster. I mean, like just, they've got this whole dynamic of like, you've got this beer bar here. And I'm when I say a beer bar, uh, I'm selling it short. Yeah, I, I mean, 60, what do they have? Taps and- uh, 70 taps. I mean, it's just crazy. And, you know, this is, they've made some really clearly wise decisions about how they're going to deal with not only quality, but more importantly with volume, because uh, they're going to get large crowds. And that's, they keep the bars. It, it's a separate bar. You actually walk into the, the adjoining room, you know, that's juxtaposed to that for your mixed, you know, your mixed drinks, your, your margaritas and your spirit drinks, base drinks. And they, they're not phoning that in. That's for sure. They had what about like eight or nine of these industrial professional quality blenders. And, you know, we tasted several of the drinks and they weren't, you know, they were perfectly blended. They weren't, you know, uh, what's the viscosity level was right there. It held the flavors. Well, I mean, this is a very well considered, operation and they've clearly refined that to that you know they're able to replicate that in other places and i think a a big step for them is bringing in you know teddy lopez the chef to so that the food isn't just this kind of like oh we'll get some passable bar food it's really good like teddy really understands cuisine he understands menu design and and how to execute that and we had some really good go ahead well, well, you you've given me a lot to respond to, so let me so let me just yeah. let me just uh, let me just react to a couple of things. Right, the, the drink program made to order frozen drinks, which means, as you said, they have a wall of blenders. They're not coming out of a margarita machine, so that they they can use you know freshly squeezed juices. They can use quality spirits and and still get that nice fluffy texture and and get everything blended properly and and have different options. You know, there's not just one or two frozen margaritas, there's, you know, I think there's 10 or 12 of them and they can do a frozen pina colada and a, you know, even, even a mezcal margarita with chartreuse in it, which is frankly one of my, my favorite margarita variants. So, you know, to be able to get that as a frozen is, is refreshing uh, not to be too, uh, too punny about it, but it's a, it's a nice change from what you see at, at most other bars. And that setup of the beer bar on one side, the cocktail bar on the other will be familiar to anyone who's been the, Heights Beer Garden or Holman or any of their other spots. Like that's a that's that's a very been a very successful uh format for the Kirby group. And talk about Teddy Lopez, you know, this is someone who worked for Ronnie Kellen uh for many years and and at every concept. You know, he you know, he he can he can run the pits at Killen's barbecue, he can he can oversee the you know, the line at Killen's Steakhouse. He he helped uh get Killen's TMX, the Tex Mex restaurant dialed in. And he brings all of that, all of that experience and all of that talent uh, to the menu at Verde Garden. Now, what were a couple of the dishes at Verde Garden that you really enjoyed? Well, things like he did, he did an aguachili, aguachili that you know uh, it wasn't a ceviche, so it was like it's made practically, it's made to order, and it was light, it was refreshing, it was delicious. You know, um, it, the yeah, the enchiladas were good. I liked those too. Uh, there was a mole on one of them that was really delicious. And this is all going to serve well for, you know, what is, this is principally going to be sort of a drinking environment, but it was a good looking crowd, a fairly smart looking crowd, but, you know, in a very casual atmosphere. Uh, I think what's, what's interesting, and and this is their, 
you know, one of the things that they do is they do counter service. They don't do, there's no cocktail waitresses, there's no servers. It's all bartenders and food runners. And that's worked for them. And uh, whether or not that, you know, in that space, in that environment, people have that expectation, you know, I, I think people will come around and be just fine with how it comes out because it's not, you know, it's not this super fancy thing where like, Hey, I'm paying a lot of money. I want to be waited on. I think people will be comfortable with that casual vibe. And, um, you know, with Teddy back there, that shows that they're committed to like having that food be good. Yeah. Well, and I think the nice thing is it will have that bar environment in the evenings, but they're open for lunch every day. So it'll have, you know, noon on a Tuesday. It's just a, a casual kind of Tex-Mexy lunch spot. And, and the nice thing is that being bar forward, the, the food's really affordable, you know, so you can get an order of chicken enchiladas for, uh, for 10 bucks, you know, or, or carnitas for 10 bucks. So it's, it's very affordable because the drinks kind of subsidize the food, whether you're drinking or not, uh, that's to your benefit. So if, if anything, you know, with the big patio and the indoor outdoor aspect and, and being, you know, kind of drinks forward, it, it kind of reminds me of, of the, of Taco Milagro. And yeah. And, and of course it has that phalanx of, you know, everyone's got the, you know, of TVs now. So it can be, you know, kind of like the sports thing too, without it being, I think the volume was either off or down. So it wouldn't be this overwhelming thing. I'm sure they can adjust that appropriately when the Astros make the playoffs again. So would I got, you know, that barometer, would I go back? I would go back for lunch and eat there. Absolutely. For the reason you stated, it's like affordable and it's delicious and parking's not going to be a problem. Is it destination worthy for like, Oh, let's go have dinner there. You know, not in my eyes, it's going to be more of the drinking environment. That's going to, Hey, you know, while you're here, you can also get good food, you know, you can get decent food here. So that's, that's the more the, the vibe that I see. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, dinner, it's more of like a group thing, right? Like if you're, if you're a group of like six or eight, you know, you won't need a reservation. It's, it's, they got plenty of room. You can sit on the patio. You can sit inside. Everybody can get something that's a little bit different. You know, even vegetarians, there's plenty of options uh, and everybody can get, get their own drinks and, and it's counter service. So you all pay separately. It's very flexible in that, in that sense. And I think, you know, that, that would be more of the dinner vibe for me than, you know, maybe a, you know, like a one-on-one kind of setting, but, uh, you know, again, I, I think, you know, the food, the food definitely exceeds expectations and, and that's not a surprise with, with Teddy in the kitchen overseeing things. Uh, the drinks are great. They always are at the Kirby group places. And so, yeah, I think I'd, I'd be happy to go back there for lunch anytime and, uh, you know, make it a stop in the evening, uh, because it is, you know, it's on West Dallas and, and we keep talking about everything that's going on that's going on in that area, whether it's, you know, Muse that we talked about a couple of weeks ago or Andiron that just opened or Clarkwood and, and, you know, or Georgia James or, or Ben Berg's places that are coming soon. I mean, you know, it's all, it's all on this corridor. And, and so it's, it's one more stop on a night, right? You can, you can start or finish it at Faraday garden or hit it in between other places and, and it'll be casual and comfortable and relatively affordable. So it's, it's uh it's very appealing for a lot of reasons. Yeah, that whole area is just so dynamic and so much it's so much happening and, and yet to happen. It's it's impressive. Well, and and the property itself, I mean, you know, we should note, you know, Katami, the new the new restaurant from from Horisan is is coming there soon. So that's gonna be on the short list of best new restaurants of twenty twenty three. At least that's my my hope for it. And then, 
you know, that's in the Nino space. And then there's all, there's all kinds of wild rumors floating around about what's going into Vincent's. And, and I, I, I hope to be able to confirm that uh, pretty soon, but it's uh, if, if the rumors are true, it's, it's going to be uh, quite, it's going to be very lively. In yeah. Part yeah. of the world. Yeah. It's you think like, have we reached saturation level on sushi, you know, and the answer to that is clearly no. And with Hori coming behind it, you know, like the, the quality is just going to be top notch. So yeah, that, that's just, it's really going to really, I think it's going to be a home run. Absolutely. All right, Michael, I'm going to say that does it for our restaurants of the week. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good one. All right. And I'll be right back with Josh DeLeon. Hey, everyone. Just a quick heads up that the interview with Josh DeLeon features a little bit of spicy language. You may not want to listen to this one with your kids in the car. Thanks. I am joined this week by the owner of Underground Creamery, Josh DeLeon. Welcome to the show. How are you? Good. Glad to be here. Avid uh, listener of the show. Very excited to be here. Long long time listener, first time guest. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, look, I mean, you're you're familiar with the format, so let's start at the beginning. I mean, tell me about how you first got interested in in the world of ice cream oh uh me being interested in the world of ice cream so ice cream to me became a vice so i was very into uh lifting weights and um that's that was my treat to myself so when you when your diet is comprised of like you know chicken and rice and broccoli every single day you get to treat yourself and then um yeah and then um you know there's a bunch of um accounts that review ice cream at the time and i figured i'd take a stab at it too so i went ahead and buy all the ben and jerry's all the bluebells at the grocery store and started reviewing them on my uh my food page called eats gone wild um that was supposed to showcase you know local um local establishments but um since you know i at the time i couldn't afford to eat out a lot and um yeah ice cream was my splurge thing and and, uh, you know, eventually when you eat like, what, over 400 pints of ice cream, you figure you want to try making it yourself. And that's where I am now. So. See, you say that like it's such an obvious thing. But but let me tell you, I've eaten ice cream all over this country and I have no <laughs> desire to make my own ice cream. Like I'm I'm perfectly content to let other people make ice cream. So so dive into that a little more deeply. I mean, what when did you get to the point where you were like all right, this is like, I've had some good, I've had some bad, but like, I want to, I want to try my hand at this. Well, you know, um, you know, as a consumer, you're always like, man, I wish uh, this company would uh, make it uh, a certain way that you want it. Uh, I was just like, well, fuck that. I'll just make it myself. I mean, cause like, you know, when you ship ice cream from all over America, it's hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Like, you know, at the time Jenny's uh, was probably the most affordable one uh, shipping wise. Cause they had a flat rate if you buy six pints. So like I had a lot of Jenny's um, before and now uh, before they uh, opened up shop here. Um, yeah. And it, it was just like, you know, like um, I, I was just like, man, it can't be that hard, you know? Well, um, and then sure enough, when you make your uh, first batch, I'm just like, uh, wow, this is not good. And then uh, knowing me, you know, I'm just like, I'm not gonna, 
I'm not, I can't, I can't accept this. I've like, you know, spent so much money already. I, I got to make something, you know, passable. And sure enough, I, like my persistence got me to, um, you know, just keep making ice cream like almost every single day since April of 2018. Yeah. What did, what did you start with? Like the KitchenAid attachment or, or how did you, how did you get started? I bought like a $40 Cuisinart on Amazon. And that's like, you know, this, that's like a, that's like a, like a wedding gift that no one uses basically. So like, um, I bought that on Amazon then I go to Goodwill or like uh, Salvation Army. There's a, there's tons of, um, uh, unused Cuisinart ice cream machines. Cause it's just, you know, it's like you have to freeze the bowl and then, and then, uh, you, you make the base and you have to turn it the next day. So it's, it's kind of a hassle, but you know, it's just like no, no beginner would, would drop like a $1,200 uh, machine, uh, compressor machine, you know? Yeah. So was there, was there like a cookbook or, or where did you, where did you first get the, the recipes that you were using? So one of my, my, one of my first shipments were from Ample Hills in New York. Uh, I think uh, they're, they're closing down. Uh, they they had some issues with like uh, new owners or whatever in New York. Um, so that, that was like one of my favorite ice cream uh, splurges. Um, at the time, it was like a hundred bucks for four pints. I was just like, oh, cool, this is so expensive. And then you know that quality control issues at the time. I was just like, oh, all right, you know. Uh, and I kept doing it. That was because there there's some uh, there's some pints that were just really good, and some pints were just like uh, it lacked all the mixins and stuff. Um, but yeah, so they they put out a cookbook which just like covered um, almost everything. It's just like because um, I've tried all the cookbooks. Like I I just compiled what I do is like a buy a bunch of cookbooks and um, I made every single uh, I made every single one of those recipes. So and I, I found that that, that was the, that yielded the best results to me uh, particularly. And uh, yeah, and every time I see a new cookbook come out, I would, I would just buy it and like make stuff out of it. But yeah, the Ample Hills cookbook is it's a good baseline. Um, that's a I highly recommend that one. All right, so like you said, it's it's 2018. You're making ice cream. Yeah. When do you get to the point at which you like? Because I met you in 20 in late 2019. Yeah. And you were you were you were producing more than you could consume, right? When yes. did when did you kind of get to the point where you started like? sharing it with friends and family to like, I, I think this is pretty good. I think I want you to taste it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't long enough after my, my first shitty batch um, to where I started bringing it to work. Uh, I wasn't selling at that time. It's just like, um, I was just making so much. Uh, like, it, like I said, I, I was making, uh, that was like, like my life every single day since I started. Um, I was just like bake a lot and see if it, holds up in the freezer because like, you know, when, when you consume, uh, when you buy, when you try different things, sometimes like brownies are really hard in the ice cream. So like I had to find, uh, I, I, I had to do so much trial and, uh, and error to get, uh, to, to make stuff like that. And then, um, yeah, I mean like, you know, like I bought, uh, I bought me a little freezer just to store all those, um, pints. And then that's like, you know, I, I was still buying ice cream then too. So like, um, I had like a whole dedicated ice cream freezer <laughs> just for uh, <laughs> and, uh, and like my, my own stash that um, that I take a bite of and not eat just to like, you know, just to try different things, have a baseline. Um, so like the whole the whole thing was just like, you know, it was me showcasing on Instagram that I was just like, you know, making all this stuff. And then and then you get DMs where it's just like, are you selling that? I was like, nah, it's just a hobby, you know. And it, uh, well, there's enough of that, and 
your DM shit just blowing up. I was like, man, I wish I could buy that. And like, I uh, look at my credit card statements and I'm just like, wow, I spent so much on the ingredients already. I need to make a return. So I started hustling it at uh, work um, at the time. And then, and then um, I stopped doing that at work because people started stealing it. And I just like, um, you know, at the break room, someone just came out of the supervisor's office where the ice cream was hidden. And this, the, this, a coworker of mine was just like cussing around. It's like, who the fuck took my ice cream? And, and like, and then, yeah, that's when I stopped. <laughs> and then that was, yeah, and like, you know, like a blue collar job. So I worked at Southwest Airlines. Uh, it's a blue collar job. I worked on the ramp as a baggage handler. So like, uh, for, for how, so, uh, for someone, um, be angry like that. I was just like, man, I guess my product is, you know, it's better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, right. Right. The point at which the, the point at which someone is willing, I, you know, we, we've talked about this uh, before. It's like, you know, it's kind of one thing to be like, you know, a backyard barbecue cook, for example, and serve it to your friends at picnics or, or family events and have them go, Hey man, this is good. But then yeah. when you start you start asking strangers to give you money in exchange for what you're producing, that's like another level. It's got to be cuz cuz then you're in the world of, you know, commerce where you're you're competing with Jenny's and Bluebell and Ben and & Jerry's and all this stuff. So it's got to be it's got to be at least as good as that and maybe better to get people to give you money for it. Yeah, I mean, like at the time it was just like I sold it for like uh so like in the very beginning since like I'm not a, I, I don't have any culinary background or or like I don't know how to game the system in in the cooking world. So like um, for me, it's just like I use good ingredients. I I it yield, uh, using good ingredients in general just yields a better result. Um, and I like you know big uh big ice cream companies don't uh you know they have to they have to sacrifice something. So like uh, for me, this is all I know. It's just like use good ingredients. Um, you're gonna spend a little more on it. Uh, and that's what it that's that's what I do. Like you know. <laughs> well, and and. You know, talk about a little bit your the evolution of your style because you know I would say that you know all of your ice creams they have like a they have like a flavor right like you know chocolate vanilla lobna whatever they have like yeah. a crunchy yeah. component and then they have like a like a swirl like a, a a softer element. So how long did it kind of take you to get to that point where you're like they're they're always going to have or they're they're almost always going to have these different elements in them. So like um for me it's just not ice cream it's a complete dessert. So like when you go to a restaurant and you get like a, a full fledged dessert you get like a you get your uh like let's say you go to Blue Door you get like a financier uh and then and then you have an ice cream with it and some sort of crunch and then the, the drizzle of sauce that's kind of like um that's kind of like what I try to do but you put it in a pint you know because like uh, like I said I don't have culinary background I don't know how to make it pretty um. So I can, uh, what I can do is just like pile the fuck, uh, pile the fuck of uh, a pint of ice cream full of shit. And, and I think uh, it yields like a, you know, uh, it, it leaves the customer satisfied in that way. Cause like, you know, um, so like, uh, like, yeah, base, uh, some sort of texture and a swirl. Um, the swirl is mostly there for like uh, to offset flavors from the base because like sometimes it's, uh, it's hard to like let, let the base shine. So you have to uh, find some sort of flavor to complement that uh, and then like bring it through, you know? So that's just like, um, that's just like my little formula, uh, for my ice creams. I mean, sometimes some, sometimes I figure like, you know, when I, uh, I brainstorm with, uh, my friend Jana who helps me here in the kitchen. Um, sometimes some ice creams don't need it. Right. Like I had the, 
like I just this weekend crushed uh, a pint of the Lobna with sour cherry, and that yeah. that doesn't have the crunchy component. That just has the 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 cherries and the and the ice cream, and it and it's very delicious. It's not a complaint. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, and the, what I find is like, uh, like you know, my my father, uh, he doesn't really like uh, mix-ins at all. So like, uh, there there's a there's definitely a market for uh, for folks who uh, who are purists, but like, um, that's just not my style uh, in general. Like, I take pride in uh, my formulation of my base, um, just because it's like you know, it's it's just it's a very delicious base. Uh, flavors shine through. Um, it's a Philly style. Um, ice cream so that, that means there's no eggs in it so like with the lack of eggs um you can really infuse the, the ice cream and you don't get that eggy flavor when you uh when you turn it right and and what and that does something for texture too right uh eggs eggs uh to me eggs are like the best emulsifier you can buy um so yeah you know like uh, if you don't use eggs you use gums uh like you know like i use locust bean gum and gore gum in mine just to make up for that uh, that emulsification, and it gives you body. So, like, it is a um, at the end of the day, like underground creamery is like uh, mostly on pints. So when when people savor it and they go in and out of the freezer all the time, it uh, keeps integrity longer than uh, a lot of products. All right, so let me let me circle back with you on on the history of of underground creamery because I like I said I encountered you in sort of late 2019, and I started following you, and eventually I I DM'd you. Said what you know? What do you what do you do with all this? I, you're you're making too much ice cream. Need it by yourself. What do you do with it? And you sent me back a, a Google Doc that had an inventory, and that was yeah. that was you know ruinous for me. That sent me down a dark a dark path of, of buying your ice cream. But you know, word so word gets around, right? I, I wasn't the only one. Talk to me about kind of the evolution of, of growing this business, and building your reputation, and getting to the point where you joined a, a commercial kitchen space with. Emmanuel Chavez. Oh yeah. All right. I mean, so yeah, the, the Google docs, um, it's one of those things where it's just like, it's, you know, you, uh, you, you kind of have to devise something where you, you funnel, um, you kind of have to devise something where you have everything, uh, uploaded or, uh, something because, because you get so much DMs of, uh, what you got, what you got, you get, you kind of get tired about it. Like, so like, um, for, for me, like up to this point, it's like, uh, finding ways to condense that process. So at first it was just like, you know, Instagram DMs and then, uh, you know, have strangers come to my apartment and pick it up. And then, you know, certain, just certain, um, just, I had this little secret Google doc where I would just post my inventory. Um, and then you, I can actually, uh, it actually, it's actually live. So like if you go, um, let's say I had like 10, uh, 10 cookies and cream or whatever. And, um, so I sold one, uh, th- uh that would go to nine. Uh, and then every everyone who's looking at the Google Doc can see that, yeah. And then you know it's like when you uh, when you sit down on a Friday night, you just uh, it it took it literally took me thirty minutes taking orders uh, just because it's like you know I put a list down or whatever, and you know I did that for a while, and then I started doing pop ups, and I think twenty nineteen I did the Big Bow Battle, that was like a huge event, and that's where I met a bunch of like uh, industry people that. Uh, you know, like Culture Map nominated, like you, you have Gabe there, you have uh, from Click, and then Willet and Jane. Yeah, I met all those guys there, and then I didn't think I was going to do something like that again. And until you know, I, like again uh, through the pandemic, I got convinced to do another pop up because, like, um, really during the pandemic is when uh, 
when my 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 little hustle took off because everything was closed and then my dms just started blowing up at that point it was just like i i can't uh you know i i'm doing what i can um i have a little machine and i'm making it out of my house so like, and I, you have to be discreet because like you know i i, I didn't really solicit it uh, online because it is like you know it is dairy a dairy product right right we should, we should we should say just just to sort of clarify right that the there, there's something called the cottage law in texas and that covers mostly bakers right yes. but if you sell something that has to be refrigerated or like ice cream frozen that is not under cottage law you have to have a food handler's permit and you yeah, know, there's, you there's, to, regu- there's regulations you have to comply with to sell that to the public. Yes, absolutely. And then, you know, I mean, I, I, I was just like, man, this is kind of dangerous and, and sketchy, you know, but that's why, like, well, I never. Well, yeah, that. and if anybody had gotten really sick from it, they they probably could have sued you for, I don't know. It would yeah, have been bad. Absolutely. Yeah, it would have been bad. Like, uh, I was just like, man, I don't make enough money for this shit. So I got to be discreet. I got to, I only got to sell to people who I trust. Uh, and then, like, I was just saw, talking like that to my head. I was like, because like I I did get worried because it's like you know I was I was working at Southwest for fifteen dollars an hour and um I'm I'm just like man uh, like if I if I got fined uh, like if I got fined how much overtime I have to work I was like I was like the the my uh, I had so much anxiety doing that but like you know uh people didn't seem to care so and uh, there there was a week where I just like stopped selling. And then, like again, the DMs never stopped. I was like, "Are you are you are you selling anything? Are you making anything?" I was like, "Nah, bro. Like, uh, I'm out. I'm out. You got. I got to lay low for a little bit." <laughs> right, right. I, I I will say as a as a former buyer, my attitude always was, you know, I I recognize that this is not produced in a commercial kitchen, and if if I get a rumbly tummy, that that's on me. You you know, it's yeah. like uh, I've eaten at taco trucks in in questionable environments and you know roadside joints. It's like. I understand that this this could end poorly for me, but I'm yeah. you know devoted to deliciousness, so I I'll take a chance every now and then. Yeah, I mean, even though I, I didn't have like the chef crackle, I did take the food handlers thing. So like um I, I I did keep up with the cleanliness as much as I can, and then you know like people come up to the apartment and, and you know they see a cat, and I'm just like man fuck, man, is that cat hair in there? I was like, but you know I I just I just kind of kept her, uh, I just kind of shoot her away from where I'm producing stuff. Yeah. So the kitchen completely blocked off my little tiny kitchen that you saw on Instagram for, for like maybe three years. <laughs> All right. So, so like you said, it, it sort of blows up in the pandemic. What, what convinced you, you know, I, you got, you got approached about moving into a commercial space. What, what convinced you that the time was right to do that? Uh, I got a uh, health department got called on me. Uh, so fun fact. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I did a, <laughs> I did a pop-up at OMG burger. Um, so it's a it's a little burger shop in Sugarland. I was like, all right, uh, you know, no one's gonna, no one's gonna fucking come here. It's in Sugarland, uh, you know. So I produced and made like maybe two hundred uh, little little cups so I can prolong it because like the machine I was using was very small. It was two quarts at a time. That's like what four 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 little pints that I can make each time. So like like um, it was just like um, it was like all day and all night that I was producing for that little pop up. And then um, you go to the pop-up, you set up or whatever, and then the line was just wrapped around the, uh, the whole shopping center. I was like, this is crazy. Because, like, you know, yes, I have, like, people hitting me up, but you never see uh, – I never saw how much people really wanted to try my stuff. 
And then sure enough, and uh, I was just like, man, this is cool. You know, like my sister gave me a little, little branding thing for Christmas that that year, just like as a joke or whatever. And and then um, I did another pop of it, um, flipping patties uh, in the understory. And then a week after that, I was like, oh, uh, OMG Burger is calling. Uh, the health department was asking about you. I was like, well, shit. And that's when I, that's when my, my paranoia tried, uh, tried to like, you know, like, it was just like my, my, my spider sense paranoia just tingling everywhere i was like all right i gotta uh, i gotta start the company i gotta find a commercial kitchen to produce because like you know this is um uh all, some eyes are on me now so you know that's that's like um that's like the the, the that's the trigger point of when the company was born yeah and and i mean this was you know we should say right you as you said you were working for southwest airlines in 2020 pandemic everybody stops traveling, you had some time on your hands. I mean, it was kind of like, in, in some ways, the, the timing was fortuitous. Yeah. So what happened uh, What happened with work is like they, um, the, in the beginning of the pandemic, they cut our hours. So I'm just like, well, I'm coming in for like four hour shifts. So it's like, this is kind of pointless. So um, I just like signed up for the, the, the voluntary uh, leave uh, because they were just cutting hours everywhere. So like uh, they just... I just did a voluntary leave where they gave me some, uh, gave me a bit of my, uh, my hours. And like, I just focused a lot on the, on, on making ice cream and like, uh, pushing it. And like, uh, it, it was just like, you know, I, it became like a little bootstrap thing. People coming in and out of my apartment uh, felt like a drug dealer, um, for sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah and, it was, then, it was you know, very confusing I'll, I'll, as a consumer. I'll tell you, it was very confusing for the security guards at the apartment complex. They did yes. not. Have- it was very confusing. Yeah, none of my neighbors knew what I was doing. Um, you know, it, like I, I feel like I feel like my neighbors would have been relieved if it was if it was drugs, but no, it's fucking ice cream. Like you know, like, like people were just like, <laughs> yeah. And, and I remember I remember your sister and uh, bringing your niece upstairs. I was like, why is there children in my apartment? It was like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's like uh, encounters like that. I was like, this is wild. And like you know. Yeah, it was like it was a little cash business, so like no no Ven- uh, Venmo transactions were very rare because like Venmo cracked down on uh, you know uh, side businesses at the time. So like I was just like, well, I'm slinging ice cream. I got a water cash. Uh, what the fuck do I do with this? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so all right, so you move into the snack club, uh, or you, you and you and Emmanuel move into the space in Montrose that that gets dubbed the snack lab. What did moving into a commercial kitchen do for you in terms of, because, because, you know, up to this point, it had always been, it was more hobby than business, right? Like you, you could have, you could have walked away from it at any time. Like at what point did you, you kind of decide for yourself, like, I want to, I want to try to make a career out of this. Um, At that point in, in all of this, that, that was the only thing that was making me money. So I'm just like, I got. I got to take this a little serious. I I'm I'm sharing a kitchen with a very serious chef, and uh, I want to I want to uphold that standard as well in inside the kitchen. So like um, our our colleague Matt Harris linked Emmanuel and I up as far as like um, like sharing the kitchen together at the old Black Labrador space, and then you know it was it was rundown kitchen. We had to clean it up um just to make it operable. But yeah, I mean, you know, Emmanuel, um, watching Emmanuel work in the kitchen, it was just us two most of the time, uh, like how efficient he works, um, 
most of the time and then all the all the fucking drake that's going around so like you know having uh setting the setting the music definitely helps with the uh with like the work environment but yeah i mean uh it's just how organized he is it's just like i try to i try to uh emulate that to uh in order for me to work efficiently as well so um i mean i did get uh, i got away with like you know working alone most of the time uh and producing as much as i can and then you know um Jana helps uh help me at that time too because she was a uh, fun employed due to the pandemic and uh yeah we just like you know stay 12 hours a day with that little machine until uh, we got a bigger one so i guess we'll fast forward just a little bit i mean now you're in now you now you've got a dedicated space you know you you're leasing from from pudgy's cookies in the heights i mean it feels like a real business now right like this is this is a permanent thing yeah yeah and uh i mean yeah it is because um mostly because because it's like you know, there's like dedicated uh, customers and following, and which I I really appreciate. They're like all of y'all who uh, you know buy underground. I don't know. It, it's it's crazy to me. It's just like it's unreal, and I'm very grateful. But yeah, it's um you know like I have like real bills now, like paying rent and you know big machinery that I have to pay for. I finally I mean, you have, have employees. Like, you you know, have I mean it's like a whole thing. Yeah, the whole sh- uh, whole shebang is what they say, I think. And then you know, and and, and you know, it's like you know, there's uh, there's definitely room room to grow because like when you uh, when you start a business from like uh, from your house uh, or like when you when you start something and you never intend that you n- never intend to start, you uh, you're kind of lost, right? So like the last three years uh, since 2020, it's just like me crawling my way up uh, to my business having legs. You know, nothing is perfect. Uh, as of now, but you know, it's, it's a lot better than what it was, I think. And I think I, I feel like my product got a lot better from what it was too, because I have more resources that I can, uh, I can, uh, tap into. Yeah. Say a little more about that, you know, kind of, kind of your evolution as a, as an ice cream maker, you know, kind of, kind of, where do you kind of get these ideas for these flavors and, and, you know, what are, you know, what, give me an example of maybe a flavor that, that you, you've done recently that you couldn't have done three years ago. Cause you, you hadn't, you hadn't developed the techniques to do it. Um, definitely the, the cheese whiz, uh, which is like, you know, it, people sleep on that flavor a lot, but it's like, um, so the, I, um, most of my ice creams hit nostalgia, like, you know, American nostalgia, which is like Ben and Jerry's, but not really because it's a little, I, I, it's a little bit more involved than that. So the candy cheeses, uh, cheeses that I made for cheese whiz, it's, it's a technique from uh, the matzo toffee uh, deal. So that's all. That's all. Um, yeah. The more the more the more you uh, read and like learn, uh, it's just like you can apply di- um, same principles to different things. So like you can do that with Oreo, graham crackers, uh, you know, Ritz crackers, whatever you want. Uh, and of course, like matzo, uh, the matzo matzo toffee with covered to- uh, chocolate. So yeah, you use that to uh, for for like your crunch or whatever, and then. The fudge and the peanut butter part is like inspired by the, those little Austin uh, Austin crackers that you uh, that you ate for snacks in school. Uh, the cheese cheese crackers uh, with the peanut butter uh, inside, and then you drink chocolate milk. So that's where I got I pulled that idea from. And then you know, like you know, people love the Oreo stuff, and you know, cookies and cream. Um, it's a top seller ice cream for a reason because it's very nostalgic. It's delicious. You can't go wrong with it. 
it's a it's it's like a it's like a safer choice between like whatever other experimental thing I make. Yeah, um, this this is sort of an absurd question, but do you do you have a personal favorite? Uh, uh, I mean, are there a couple that sort of stand out for you? Um, good question. So like um, so whatever coffee I make, uh, with the roast of the week is a, a fairly popular one. Um. So I did one with a uh, tenfolds um, E45 Positos. So it's like a, um, they do like a very unique fermentation with a coffee bean in Mexico. And um, that's what, uh, that's what uh, the, the folks at Tenfold roasted. And I did the slow drip and I found it so delicious and very uh, complex. So I used that, I used those beans to make the, uh, the ice cream. And then I just uh, studded it with like you know, some dark chocolate, like a fruity dark chocolate and, uh, you know, Biscoff. So it's like, you know, uh coffee and cookies play on that <laughs> so then i think i think that was one of the best roasts of the weeks that i've uh ever made uh to me and then and then i i know you get this question all the time but but how do you sort of balance like you know your desire to create new flavors with with your customers desires to like you know because you could make three c's every week and and sell it and people would be very happy with you yeah i mean so like uh, i um for me, it's like the transparency that I have, and I'm like with uh with everyone on Instagram. I'm, like I'm very vocal about like you know, look, I'm doing this because I love doing this, and uh, if I make three C's every single every single week, I'll get bored of it. Um, it's not for um for me, it's not uh it's not the time for for me to do that because like I want to keep the creativity, I wanted to keep uh keep it exciting uh because it's like um that's been my selling point since the beginning, so. For those who like consistency, that's going to come uh, once once the business grows, um, you know. But uh, as of now, it's just like I want uh, I want I want everyone in my customer base to know that uh, like you know it's mostly we're mostly on the same page. But um, you know, some people want that consistency and like the comfort of getting uh, their favorite, you know. But um, it's I, I it, my space and uh, my my model doesn't allow that just yet. Uh, but you know, it's. It's definitely- well, we should talk about that model, right? Because you, <laughs> you know, essentially you, you produce as much as you can in any given week and then you yes. put it online at a set time and it sells out in 30 seconds. And and I would say my analysis is that changing the flavors every week is part of what contributes to that, you know, that scarcity of, you know, if I, if I don't buy it right now, I might never see that flavor again. Absolutely. And, you know, it's like, um, it's... It, it, it's kind of neat in a way, but because it's like if I sell everything all at once, um, I have zero food waste as well. Uh, I know, I know for sure. Like learning from uh from my peers around town, like you know, food waste is inevitable, uh, especially when you go when you go and fine dining because you know, like people cut um, cut things a certain way; they have to be perfect, and I don't know what happens to the other uh, the other thing. So, like whatever I produce, it's like goes in every single pint. Uh, and then, you know, whatever excess that I have, I just repurpose it, uh, for, for the next week, you know? Uh, and then, you know, I stock pudgies with all that stuff. Um, and I used to do mystery pints, which is like, you know, since I have more eyes now and people are prone to allergies, I have to be transparent. So I stopped doing the mystery pints. So. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting, it's a really nice symbiotic relationship that you have with pudgies because now you can. Right. If if people don't pick up the pints, if people didn't pick up the pints in the past and you were kind of stuck, now you yeah. can just retail them at, at Pudgies and and move your inventory. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's cool because like uh, 
um, it's a good arrangement that we have, but like, you know, and like, like anything people don't understand Like if I, if I start retelling it, they get a cut of it because I don't, um, I don't want them to, you know, just be a, I don't want them to be just my, my, my outlet because like I have to pay them to, to do that. Right. Right. So, right. Like, They're not going to do it for free. I mean, that, no, that's reasonable. And I don't want them to do it for free because like, that's not how business works. Uh, you know, when you are in a very symbiotic relationship, you want everyone to, uh, to win, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's a good arrangement. Like, uh, like, there's definitely less complaints when I started doing that, uh, because you know, like, people that don't pick up, it's just like, um, yeah, they, it's either they don't reach out to me, um, or they reach out to me very late at night, uh, and I I just just can't arrange that uh, setup because like I, I'm gonna be in production mode. Well, and and we should be we should be fair. I mean, you're not afraid to be a little bit grouchy on Instagram. You know, you're you're not afraid to sort of fire back at or make fun of people who are unhappy about some aspect of this model that because they can't get exactly what they want whenever they want it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like like I said, like um, I I try to I, I spend a lot of time like relaying information. It's just like here's all the information. It's on my website. It's on every single post. It's on my. It's all over my Instagram. Uh, like the information is there, and all you have to do is read. Um, like um, I give you. Um, I'm not strict on when, when you're going to pick up. It's just like, um, I have these specific pickup times because that's when I have my staff and, you know, I can't produce at that time because my freezers are full. So, but you know, when, when, when the freezers are empty, you got to stock it back up again. You know, that's just the way it is just right now. Um, yeah, it's, it's just growing pains as, as of now. It's like, you know, I'm very deliberate on how I grow, uh, underground because I do love it. I do love what I do. Um, and I want to, um, I want to keep that excitement and creativity aspect to it, you know, because like there's plenty of great shops here in Houston. Uh, like, you know, my ice cream friends make really good ice cream. Like, you know, every, everyone, there's, there's going to be a style for you, but like um, my, I'm deliberate about targeting a certain amount, uh, like a certain niche, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Food nerds, yeah. like uh, re re restaurant dorks, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. I, I, I know I know who I am. I, I've accepted my my role in the world. <laughs> so I mean you, you sort of alluded like you I mean, do you have plans for you know larger larger production or or, or, or that you could get to a point where you know it, it just is always available because you're making so much of it that that you have you know you know say like four or five core flavors plus weekly specials that would rotate or, or do you like this or do you like this model that you're at right now? I mean, you could, you could keep doing this for a long time. It seems like. I mean, I can, but, th but then again, it's just like, um, you know, um, having core flavors, um, core flavors, uh, having core flavors in a way, it's like a good marketing aspect because it's like, if you have that all the time and the core flavors are fantastic, um, you know, it's just like, it's going to, pique your curiosity uh, on what uh, what the rotating menu is, but um, but as of now, like um, like like I said, you know, uh, space and uh, employees are not there for that yet. But I would love to have core flavors where you can get your three C's because, like you know, the, that's like the po the most popular flavor that everyone wants. Anyway, or your stupid animal cookie. <laughs> right, right. I mean, right. Like I, you know, if I think about. I've been eating, you know, bluebell mint chocolate chips since I was in middle school, right? Or or Ben and Jerry's cookie, you know, chocolate chip cookie dough or Cherry Garcia. 
for a long time, like more than 30 years. So yeah, if you could get to a point where you could, you know, you could make a, you know, roast of the week and three C's and I don't know, there was, there was some roasted banana thing back in the day that was like mind blowing how good it was, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, you could, you could keep making that forever. People would keep buying it forever. Yeah. I mean, I, um, like when, when I started, when I started this, I wanted to do like a salt and straw model with it where they would rotate flavors each month and have core flavors. But, um, like I said, I'm, I'm, as of now, I'm like producing as much as I can. Um, like there's like, I don't see a wiggle room just right now, but like, you know, uh, the more it grows, uh, it's definitely in the, in the cards. Like, you know, it's, um, I, I do like the, the, the excitement of the, the drops, but like, um, there's, um, there's something about it where it's like, I feel like it's uh, going to die down for a bit, <laughs> but, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, we're, we're three years in, it hasn't, it hasn't slowed down yet. Let me, let me yeah. ask you about one other thing and, and, and then we can kind of wrap this up, but you know, like you said, you're not a, you're not a trained chef, um, yeah. but you have, you have found a really nice niche kind of in the culinary community. And so I just want to ask you about kind of, you know, what it's been like for you to sort of be embraced by, by all these professional chefs and, and kind of, you know, have your niche in, in this world. Uh, honestly, it's kind of neat. And like the Houston chefs are like the most supportive people too. Uh, just because I think, I think, um, when, you, uh, I think anyone who starts a business in the food industry, it's like the bravery in that is like, uh, well-respected no matter who you are, you know? And then, um, like uh, getting recognized by these guys is like, like a huge blessing just because it's like, um, yeah, I'm making, I'm making, I'm making ice cream, but it's just like, it, but I also dine a lot, you know, that that's like, that's like my sub hobby where I, I try, uh, I love trying different foods. And then you, when you implement those experiences in, in your, um, in your product, it, it, it's, um, I think professionals recognize that. Um, and that, that's, uh, that's pretty, that's a pretty neat thing in the in Houston uh, culinary world. I, I mean, it's, it's fun kind of watching the, you know, it sort of spread, right. It's like, you know, you start, you start making an ice cream for Neo. Uh, they serve it with caviar and then Navy blue opens and, and, you know, Aaron Bluedorn and Marie Riddle are doing a, a caviar and ice cream dessert. It's like, <laughs> it's like, yeah. I see you working, you know, I, not that anybody, not that you guys invented that necessarily, but like, no, but, but, you know, you certainly showed that like there's a market for that in Houston. And, and so, yeah, why would, why wouldn't Navy blue put their spin on something like that? Oh yeah. It, and that's the thing too. Once I see like uh, different people like making uh, like very similar things, it's just, it just makes everyone better. And that's why I don't really gatekeep much. Uh, when people ask me online, I was like, Oh, I do this. Um, I'll, I'll like I'll show you where I got the recipe. It's just like I'm not gonna tell you step by step because I I, I do make uh, I do make some my some of my own tweaks in those recipes. So I'm just like, yeah, it, it's 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 neat. And then you know Emmanuel had the masa ice cream for a while, but he said um, I don't think he has room in his freezer anymore. So <laughs> he's a busy man, you know. Yeah, he's a busy. Yeah, he's got he's got a lot going on. That guy. That that restaurant might work out okay. It's it's. It seems like it's going okay for him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, let me ask you about one other thing, right? Because you, we talked on the show several months ago about, you know, Ben Berg is opening, Benny Chow's a Chinese restaurant. Um, yeah. There was a reaction in the community that, that there were, 
things about that that were problematic for people. You were very outspoken. You got you got quoted in the Chronicle, and and so you you kind of ran afoul of uh, people who didn't appreciate you sharing your your opinion. So let me just ask you. I mean, like, does that make you more reluctant to be to to express yourself, or did you kind of come out of that experience and just being like, if I have something to say, I'm going to say it. I don't care. Um, if I have something to say, especially when um, it indirectly, indirectly affect like the people of my community, um, I'm going to say something because like um, I can't be uh, for me um, as a business owner, like um, I can't be as neutral when it comes to situations like that. But um, even if it hurts my business, I don't really care uh, because it's like those people, I, I don't need to deal with those people and that's okay. And it's just like, you know, it's, I'm not, um, I'm not really afraid to um, speak out. It's just like, I'm not, I'm not trying to like, you know, knock his business or anything. It's just like, Oh, it, it's just one of those things. So it's like, Oh, that's kind of fucked up and you know, move on. <laughs> well, cause there, there are plenty of other people who are like, you know, the other perspective is look, I've got to sell food to everybody, no matter their right. political opinion. And so right. I don't want to rock the boat. You know, I'm just going to keep my head down and do my job. Yeah. And in that aspect, I um, I'm in a very fortunate position where I can tell you to fuck off, and and I'm just like, and you know, it, 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 to me, it's like I'm I'm very um, I'm very grateful that I have dedicated customers who aligns with um, with my values, and um, I, I feel like um, I feel like your customer base will will support you no matter what, you know, like really like um. I will support anyone who aligns with my values, uh, no matter what. Plus, they make really good fucking food. Like, come on, you know. Well, and, and since you mentioned it, I mean, uh, you know that you do like to go out to eat, and, and you and you have you know built this community. I mean, what are a couple of the places that you've been to that you're you want to give a shout out to that you're particularly excited about right now? No, um, so I went to and uh, and iron uh, when they opened fire. Um, where, where where else did I go? Um, but did you get the key lime pie? I did not. So I, yeah, and then uh, I, I did go to uh, Navy Blue though. Um, I, I forgot to post about them, but like I, I enjoyed the meal there. And then uh, Marie was there, and she sent me the key lime pie. I was like, oh no, you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a running joke on Instagram. This is like um, the uh, key lime key lime pie to me is like um, it's like a lower tier dessert. <laughs> Uh, not to trigger your your folks out there, but I'm like, no, no. Know. Look, I look. I'll, I I will say this very openly. It is never my first choice, but it is also my mother's favorite. So anytime okay. I'm with her and it's on the menu, it's happening, whether whether I wanted to or not. So I I'm sympathetic that's, that's to fair. your your key lime pie, uh, yeah, aversion. It was like there's a, a really fire chocolate dessert next to that key lime pie on the menu. I was just like, I'm going to get the chocolate dessert. <laughs> yeah. There's a really good, there's a really good chocolate cake at end iron too. That that's uh, yeah. worth ordering a lot of, a lot of stuff yeah. on that menu is worth ordering. Yeah. Um, very good restaurant. Love it. Well, Josh, it's been a lot of fun. As, as you know, before I let you go, we have to play the lightning round. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Josh DeLeon, what is your favorite ingredient to put in ice cream? Oreos. What is the first band you ever saw in concert? Yeah. I went to Warp Tour in 2008. Um, that, there's a lot of bands. Up, okay, yeah. Uh, what is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive-thru. 
The Raising Games. Good answer. Who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Uh, Hakeem Olajuwon. And then finally, what is the last TV show you binge watched? Um, Jury Duty. <laughs> All right, Josh, give us the. Uh, I think I think everybody who listens to this podcast already follows you, but but give us the give us the website and the social media for Underground Creamery. Yeah, you can find me at undergroundcreamery.com, um, at undergroundcreamery on Instagram, or at Eats Gone Wild on Instagram. That's the that's the page um, I post bullshit on, so go follow that too. All right. Josh, thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Eric. You can follow me on Instagram, at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.